Welcome to the DLA Piper Tech Law podcast series in preparation for the European Technology Summit 2021 to be held on the 5th of October. My name is Kit Burden and I'm a London-based partner at DLA Piper and global co-chair of the firm's technology sector. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Hannah Fry. Hannah is going to be the keynote speaker uh, to open our tech summit on the 5th of October and we're particularly pleased to have her both for this podcast but also for the summit itself. As many as you will know, Hannah is a very well-known academic, a broadcaster, and in fact, frequent speaker on many topics, particularly relating to mathematics, data, and its influence upon human society and the way which we interact with each other. You may also know that Hannah is particularly well-known in current times for having effectively predicted through the power of maths, the inevitability of some of the, the pandemics that we're now going through. But Hannah, enough from me. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the areas that you're focusing on just at the moment? Yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> predict it was quite. <laughs> I think the power I, of maths. Well, yeah, I mean, we certainly weren't the only ones who saw it coming, right? I think there was a lot of people shouting from the rooftops for a, a number of decades um, before COVID nineteen hit. Um, but yes, I think that's a that's a pretty good summary. I um, I um, actually I just got a promotion, so I'm now a professor in the mathematics of cities uh, at UCL. So um, really I am interested in all kinds of things that involve patterns in human behavior and particularly patterns that move around in space and time, mm -hmm. um, which sounds quite vague, but there's, that means that I can, uh, I feel like I've got the excuse to look at a number of different setups. So things like shopping, um, things like, uh, like diseases, but also things like terrorism, things like burglaries, uh, things like rioting. And they sound like, <laughs> they sound like uh, I'm being, uh, the phrase I like is intellectually promiscuous, which I am. <laughs> <laughs> but actually at their heart they all have these these very similar um techniques required of them which is a, it's all about really geospatial data and patterns of human behavior that move around in space and time yeah so i guess it's the way in which we can now harness data to, to be able to predict the way that people are going to behave and obviously draw, draw the conclusions about how we should be reacting accordingly yeah exactly that i think it's partly about making predictions and uh, and forecasts and knowing where the limits of those things are and i think it's also partly about really understanding how um how different environments impact different people mm -hmm. in in a slightly different way okay well taking that point about predictions um i think back in i think it was 2019 you did a talk entitled um should computers rule the world i think for those who haven't seen it i think it's um, it's on youtube um, and I really enjoyed listening in on that because you went through some of the um, both the capabilities, but also limitations of the use of algorithms uh, and artificial intelligence and gave it you know, some of your views of what the future could be based mm -hmm. upon the, the application of those types of technologies. Now, obviously, at the moment, we're living in a very uncertain world. I don't even think we could say a post pandemic world yet, but one where um, at the same time, we've got all of the uncertainties resulting from COVID, we've also got the very disruptive impact of new technologies and in particular uh, artificial intelligence upon the way that we interact with each other and companies work and in fact the way that society will operate. But given what you were thinking back in 2019 and now where we are now, what would you say were the key challenges for us associated with, with AI in particular? Well, it's funny actually, um because I sort of think that the big thing that's changed or should have changed since 2019 to now 
is that we should now be living in a world where people really understand exponential growth, um, <laughs> given what's happened with the pandemic. But I also think, actually, um, there does still seem to be this, I don't know, I think that people are sort of remain a little bit slow to catch on to that idea. There's this brilliant book, um, a new book by Azim Azar called The Exponential Gap. And it's, it's essentially about how technology is increasing exponentially, um, which I think anybody who works in the sector, uh, in the sector um, realizes, but that society is sort of trundling along at this kind of linear, um, on, on this linear slope. And, and thus, as a result, the gap between what technology can do and what society expects technology can do is, is ever increasing. And I really think that's sort of the position that we're in at the moment. Um, and so as a result, I think that there has been, uh, you know, since 2019, there has been a good couple of years of sort of exponential change. And I don't think that society has really caught up or realized just how profoundly different the world of uh, the, the coming 10 years will be from, from the world of the, the previous 10 years. Um, I think that a couple of things have shifted in people's view of technology in that time. I think particularly the question around bias has changed slightly. I think that I think the world now realizes that um, there are these uh, profound problems with inherent biases and how they are baked into uh, you know decisions that are made by algorithms uh, and baked into data that that um, that, that that is collected. I still think people sort of imagine that you can just do a bit more data and do a bit more AI and it will fix those problems. I still think we haven't kind of got around to this idea that uh, while bias is partly a data problem, it's also much, much bigger problem than that. Um, and not one that you can fix with just a few matrix manipulations. But I also think that some of the struggles that the AI is having at the moment and that people in data science are having at the moment with that that how much of the firebreaker how much of the human should you leave in the loop actually these are quite old questions right you know mm -hmm. if you think about um uh, nuclear power stations they were having these exact same conversations about how much should be automated and how much should a human be in control you know back in sort of the 70s and 80s right um or uh, aircraft is the other really great example about autopilot and how much should, should a, a, a human pilot still have the right or um, authority, I guess, to overrule the machine. And there is actually, there's a really great joke. Um, <laughs> about two minutes in, I'm already telling you a dad joke. <laughs> there's a really great joke about autopilot that I really like, which is that um, for the perfect flying team, what you need is a computer, a pilot, and a dog. Uh, so the computer is there to fly the machine, um, the human is there to feed the dog, and the dog is there to bite the human if they ever try and touch the <laughs> Yeah, I've heard that one, I remember yeah. it well. I love it, I love it. Um, and I think that actually, broadly speaking, if you, you know, humans were this, this mess of noise and inconsistency and like, we don't make consistent decisions, we're very bad at, at sort of, at, at, at making clear logical decisions. And I think that if you build in automation, actually you can go some way to improving that, but it's the edge cases, right? It's kind of like all of the little problems um, around the corners that are, uh, that are so difficult to ensure mm. that you're, you're getting um, that system right. And I guess get a disproportionate amount of the press as well. Yeah, of course they do. Of course they do. And, and there's this question of scale there too, right? If you have a, a system that is, um, 
you know, absolutely fine 99.999999% of the time and you scale it up to 7 billion people or whatever, you know, you're, there's going to be quite a lot of stories of people who are impacted by that. But so for me, I think the way out of that, the way out of that tension between who should have the last say so is um, it's about the way that we build the technology. I think that a lot of examples of technology, particularly in the last decade, have been about building something that works and then expecting the human to sort of fit in in the background and be the emergency brake, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the case of driverless cars where humans are literally the emergency brake. And uh, I think that's not really a situation that's ever gonna end well. Whereas I think that if instead you start with your human and you start with the things that the human can do and is good at and the things that the human can't do and is deeply flawed at, and you create your technology to fit into the mistakes that humans make, I think you actually end up with a much better situation. So in the case of driverless cars, like having this sort of automatic guardianship rather than expecting to jump straight ahead to full automation. Or um, another really famous example that people have uh, been arguing about a lot is that of judges and uh, AI being used in the courtroom to try and make predictions about who will go on to commit another crime in future. And I think in that situation, if you create, create an AI and expect a human to catch all of its mistakes, it's just never really going to work that well. Whereas I think if you have the human in the driving seat and you've got an AI that's trying to highlight the inherent biases in the human, to highlight the inconsistencies in the human decisions, I think actually that's a much better potential partnership. Yeah. So taking that point about the, the human role, um, obviously, for all the reasons you've set out, that we appreciate those tremendous opportunity of the use of the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence and so on, and a lot of organisations, both private and public sector, who are you know, desperate almost to, to harness those opportunities, either for competitive reasons or, or otherwise. And we can see that there are some guardrails being imposed by things like the requirements of privacy by design, which is coming in through the um, privacy legislation and now new regulations from the European Union about constraints in terms of the way that um, uh, artificial intelligence can be applied and in what context. Mm. But to what extent do you think from your perspective that this can be entrusted to regulators and governments as opposed to organizations who are actually creating the AI or is it even just in the hands of the individuals? I mean, where do you think the greatest hope lies for us in terms of trying to make sure that AI is applied in the uh, in the best way possible? I like how you said it. There is greatest hope. So that's <laughs> <laughs> not the only not the only hope. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I think right now at this moment, I uh, struggle to be that hopeful about regulation. I think that we are. Um, in a situation where we have power concentrated in a, in a handful of very large companies who span international boundaries. And I think that does make it incredibly difficult for you to introduce effective regulation. So I wouldn't say I was optimistic in that regard. Um, simultaneously, I think in terms of an individual, I think it's very difficult to have much autonomy um, and, and sort of power in any of this. I remember I was researching my book. So this is like a couple of years ago now. And um, I went to uh, I went to something that was called a crypto party, which um, sounds a lot more fun than it was. <laughs> 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 so a crypto party, 
you essentially go and learn how to protect your own privacy when uh, when searching online, when, you know, when doing anything, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of it was kind of obvious, like ad trackers and, and, you know, using the dark web, that sort of thing. But some of the lengths that people in that room were willing to go to was pretty extraordinary. So there was one in particular, I remember um, someone had created a type of operating system that lived on a USB stick. And it, when you pulled it out from a computer, all trace of your existence just completely disappeared with the, you know, with, wow. the and you essentially reinstalled an, an entire operating system every time you plug this thing in. And I think that actually what I found really s- startling on that evening was, well, the lens that people had to go to, to avoid being tracked, um, <laughs> you know, how much they had to, I guess, forego the things that the rest of us are are quite willing to partake in, how much you have to remove yourself from society. But I also thought while I was there, as I was looking around all these people, I mean, you didn't exactly have name badges, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, kind of defeat the purpose, wouldn't it? (laughs) Um, I found myself looking around and I couldn't help it. I was like, what do these people have to hide? But, But I also think that that's kind of strange that we're so far down this road that actually to want to be able to have some autonomy about your own information, um, you know, you, you, it, it means drawing suspicion. I think that's kind of pretty yeah. extraordinary. Well, the fact that it's no longer this is, well, I suppose on one side we have this, this very strong legal, legally enshrined right to privacy, and yet everything about the use of technology in society suggests that that is being worn away and yet never the twain shall meet. We certainly, we see lots of implications of that in the way that companies want to use the technology that's available to them, but it's almost a case of saying, well, just because you can doesn't Mm. mean necessarily that you should. Uh, And there's there's plenty of examples of that, I'm sure. Oh, that's such a good point. I think you're absolutely right on that one. I think it's like, I mean, I'm the same, right? You know, I'm an academic who handles data around human behavior. And there are times where um, I'm thinking in particular of one project, um, which my PhD student conducted, where she had um, a mobile phone. I mean, basically mobile phone trackers on people. It was all above board, you know, we didn't sort of break any rules, Um, but it pinged people's location. We recorded people's location every three minutes um over a period of time this is pre-gdpr days i should tell you Mm. um and what it meant was that when there were terror attacks on london bridge um, and on westminster bridge we knew how the crowd reacted right we could analyze that and study it and we could compare it to something like oxford circus where there was uh, an incident um in that tube station where people thought that there was a terror attack and there was panic but it wasn't real. It was sort of, uh, it, it was a situation that escalated and got out of hand, but it was never any real threat. Mm-hmm. And you can look at how real panic changes people's behavior in a way that art- artificial panic doesn't. That is such a sophisticated project, right? You, I mean, I, you, you dream of having data sets like that. It's so, the detail that you get about who we are and how we behave is so extraordinary. But I always say, like, you know, I can't like claim to be this like lofty person who is like, no, 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 no data. I, you know, there shouldn't be any data. But at the same time, I really recognize that we are 
we've lived through this period where companies have basically been like hoarders, right? Like, you know, they're sort of like these dragons sitting on their piles of treasure being like, just give me more and more and more and more and more without ever knowing whether they're going to use it or um, whether it is of any use whatsoever. And um, I just, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is going to change, surely. I think the pressure will change. But I think we've started to see this, actually. I, this is definitely the last couple of years I've really noticed companies starting to use privacy as a marketing uh, tool, you know, as a, essentially as like um, as a way to make their products appear more um, more valuable to the, to the customer. And I think that's a very interesting shift, actually. Yeah. yeah. We're set. You know, using privacy as a differentiator, but in a positive way, I think certainly is something that we see. But taking that on another stage in terms of uh, of using what we've seen now as an example of what may be to come, there have been some people have said that um, what we've gone through recently in COVID-19, it was almost like a dress rehearsal for other challenges that we're going to face as a society, with you know, climate change being the uh, the obvious example. And yeah, the, the recent uh, heat wave in North America is a frightening precursor of what may be ahead for us as a society in the, the years to come. And obviously, technology and the use of data and the use of AI has been a, a, a great help in terms of the way that we have reacted to COVID-19 and found our ways through it in terms of the way the, the speed of the research has been done, the, the manipulation of data to help with modeling of the way that we should react and so on. But to what extent do you think that tech, those self-same technologies, those self-same techniques and realization of the power of data could be at the core of the way that we react to some of these other upcoming challenges with climate change being the, uh, the obvious one? Yeah, that's such a, such a good question. I, I sort of think that, um, well, I think one of the big things that I saw that I noticed uh, particularly early on when everyone was very concerned, where when the pandemic was really the only thing that people could think about, what I really noticed was a lot of scientific institutions trying to connect the dots. There were initially like a big flurry of activity. You know, go- Google mobility data was really helping us to understand the impact that lockdowns were having. Um, you know, there was like lots of these little, or, or the NHS Test and Trace app, you know, about uh, the number of connections with other individuals. There were lots of these little things that were trying to preserve people's privacy um, while simultaneously trying to sort of advance um, uh, advance uh, our understanding about the pandemic. And I still think that there's this real tension, actually, like what was done in South Korea, where it was, you know, everything was connected, right? So like you use your bank card in an ATM Mm -hmm. and then get in a taxi and and everything is joined up. And I know that there's still sort of an ickiness about that, um, certainly within the UK, uh, and I think in America too, about that idea that you would would be able to use that data even in a situation such as um, a pandemic. But I think the really positive story uh, that I think will persist is really what happened right at that beginning when everybody was really concerned about it. Because institutions like um, the Royal Society, who saw that there were these really disparate projects where people were using their own data sources, recognized this opportunity to start joining things up together. um, And I guess connecting up different people's expertise. So things like, um, you know, in a supermarket, uh, having people who are crowd specialists, right? Because uh, there are people who, who spend their entire lives like modeling the movement of a crowd and trying to like work out optimal flows through yeah. the 
things. Um, but connecting up those people with uh, individuals who are maybe uh, fluid dynamicists and look at the way that air flows and through a sort of air conditioning system um, within a supermarket. And then maybe simultaneously, I don't know, connecting that up with uh, town planners who understand, um, you know, how there are resources spread out across a town and how there might be uh, some areas which require a little bit more support in terms of getting hold of groceries. I think that um, that was the really positive thing for me was 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 noticing that these distinct boundaries of, of scientific understanding based on data um, were no longer in their silos. It was really about joining them up. And I think that when it comes to something like climate change, um, I hope that the urgency is there while it's still possible to make that, that difference. But I think that you really need that connected up approach. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that everybody tackling their own thing individually is not going to make the same impact that we had with this sort of almost warlike strategy of the last uh, of the last couple of years, everybody trying to head in the same direction. Yeah. I mean, you've benefited from a, a, an incredibly diverse um, background of people that you've interacted with from academics in multiple different fields, be it physics, geography, maths, etc., um, as well as architects and geographers, people obviously involved with city planning, all the way through to fluid dyna dynamicists, if that is the word. Um, I think you've worked with Formula One, which is exciting for all of us petrol heads out there. So with all of those different sectors, all those different um, areas that you've been involved with and which you've been able to, to assist with in terms of their analysis of data. Um, if you were to pick out areas which you think are particularly um, prone to disruption now as we move into this year or continue to move through to industry 4.0, digital transformation, whatever you want to call it, where do you think the, the greatest change is going to come? And is it, as many people say, retail, although maybe that's an, a bit of an old story now, or are there other areas yet which perhaps are more subtly impacted so i think for me i think it's the ones that have sort of um traditionally been left behind a little bit um so there's there's sort of a bigger gap a bigger technological gap for them um to jump across so i really like the tech in farming i think it's amazing there's lots of really exciting stuff there's also um actually uh in sort of the public sector there's this amazing project um that is uh, trying to bring tech to firefighters. So if you think about it, I mean, if there's one area that's really been left behind by technology, it's, it's firefighters. I mean, they're still there with a clipboard and a walkie-talkie, right? Which is the same technology mm. they had in what, early nineties? I mean, maybe even earlier. So there's, um, there's one project uh, where they're trying to use machine vision um, to improve the visibility of firefighters as they are in a, a smoke-filled environment. So I think some firefighters actually, when they enter a really smoky building, they're taught to close their eyes just to heighten their other senses because the visibility is so terrible. And they have kind of infrared cameras, but like they're really bulky and you sort of have to sit and hold them up. Mm -hmm. um, and actually if you're in a hot environment and with big gloves on, it's just not really reasonable. So this one project, it uses infrared uh, um, vision or infrared cameras and then uh, machine vision to project the outlines of objects onto the inside of the visor of a firefighter. So when they're in a building, they can kind of look around and say, OK, there's um, a person over there, there's stairs over there, you know, there's a fire over there. 
and uh, yeah, make like a, a, an enormous difference to how quickly they can navigate through a building, which I think is like this really profound shift. And say so it to really save lives in the very literal sense. Yeah, yeah, completely. So, I mean, I, 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 was, I had the opportunity to speak to the founder of this company, this guy called Sam Kosman. Um, and he was saying that like the number of times, really like real, really, really tragic, the number of times when firefighters have run out of air while trying to find their way out of a building um, just because they can't see, just because they can't see. Yeah. He told me a story about one, one of his, uh, one firefighter who was, you know, literally feet from the door and just didn't know it was there and, um, and very tragically ran out of air. Yeah. And having this kind of technology will really, I mean, just make a massive difference to those. That, yeah. Well, every, every single life saved is uh, worth the investment, isn't it? Yeah. Well, um, Obviously, you know, the, the summit um, theme that we have coming up in October is all about um, technology as an enabler of resilience as we come out of uh, these pandemic times and hopefully into sunnier climes in the future. But when we, we read about technology either in um, the press or through books or people that we hear talking about it, quite often there's quite starkly opposed views. There's those who have a rather dystopian view of technology and rather negative connotations about what impact it will have upon our daily lives and the loss of control of individuals and so on. And then others who have a, a far more positive view and talk about the enablement of technology, how it's, it will you know, free us up from the drudgery of tasks and give us you know, more time for more artistic and positive pursuits. So that's much far more of a utopian view. Do you think, I mean, it's, part of this may come down to whether you're a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person, but do you think one of those views is more or less likely to be the truth in practice, or are we inevitably going to have a mix of both? And perhaps as a follow-on question for that might be, is there anything you think that we could be doing now to trend us towards more of the utopian view rather than the dystopian one? I think that, okay, I feel positive about how the conversation has really started to focus on the people who are left out um, of the equation really I think I think that's that is at the forefront of people's minds at the moment in conversations about algorithms and about data and that doesn't mean that it's even close to being anything like fixed or ever will be let's be honest yeah. but I do think I do feel positive that actually this is genuinely something that people care about. And I think it tends to happen that when people really care about something, it does make a change for the better, even if it takes quite a long time. Um, I think that the main thing for me, and like maybe I'm using optimism as a coping strategy, that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a possibility there. <laughs> I think the main thing for me is that we are at a point in history when the biggest problems that face humanity like climate change like pandemics like um, access to clean water uh, the, the the plastic waste all of these problems are essentially scientific questions and I think that because of that we are in a position where data and AI and technology genuinely can make a humanity changing impact um, not saying it's going to be easy and not saying that there won't be terrible stuff too along the way. But I think that's the reason why I remain overall quite positive about, uh, about this space. So with that optimistic note in, in mind, mm. 
for all the people who will be coming along um, virtually to the, the summit in October, if you could pick one thing that you would want them to be able to, to leave that summit with in their mind to re reflect that optimistic spirit going forward, what do you think it would be? Okay, so, I mean, I think <laughs> the one thing I'm going to say is actually, I think it's generally a lesson for life. <laughs> getting a bit profound aren't I like I've done, <laughs> I've done the meaning of life now I've done the biggest life lesson okay so I sort of think that a lot of the problems that we've had in the last whatever however long maybe decade have been that um, people imagine data and AI and technology to be this magical machine that does what it says on the tin and manages to do so every single time and I think that whenever it's fallen short of that people have got gotten obsessed with really tiny marginal incremental increases or improvements on the performance of these things rather than actually recognizing that they're never going to be perfect and maybe making them easier to appeal right than like yeah. than, than just like obsessing over perfection so i think the one thing that is really important as we move forward um is this idea of like intellectual humility so like not having arrogant computer scientists and mathematicians telling us how the world should look um and like not having sort of this this um these flawed machines uh dictating uh, decisions for individuals i think it's about recognizing that this is a very very messy world um, perfection is impossible and there is no finish line when it comes to sort of bias or fairness mm. or performance of these things. And actually it's about having the humility to continually work towards improving them rather than sitting back and basking in the glory of what's already been created. That's fantastic. Well, Hannah, that's a fantastic note for us to end on. And I'm sure one that we'll be able to expand on when we come to the, the, uh, the summit in October. So I very much look forward to your keynote then. I think it'll be a fantastic day. Oh, thank you very much, Kate. I'm very much looking forward to it.